turn to Philippians chapter 2, where we will be looking together at some of the theology behind Christmas. And before we begin, let's pray together. Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments, so that having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Christ, are the light of our souls and bodies, and to you we give glory together with God, who is without beginning, and your all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and forever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Let me start with a rhetorical question. What is your favorite Christmas hymn? Kids, if you come and talk to me after the service, I'd love to hear yours, and I'll see if you can guess mine. But it won't shock some of you to know, I can be a little bit of a Grinch about Christmas music. I don't want to rain on everybody else's parade. Uh, But there are quite a few of these songs that do nothing but list people and animals that may or may not have been in the stable when Jesus was born. Not to mention the strangeness of singing about a baby who doesn't cry, or has radiation shooting out of his face, or is perfectly content while a drum is hammered as a so-called gift rings hollow with anyone who has been around an actual human newborn. But some of these songs that only pop up in our churches in December hold some of the most profound theology ever composed by human pen. This makes sense if you think about it. What what greater and more wondrous mystery is there than the fact that God took on human flesh and lived among us in this world as a man? There is no more beautiful subject of which to sing than the love of God, which would cause him to give his son as his most precious gift to us his undeserving creation. Hidden somewhere in the third and fourth verses of our Christmas hymns are the most, some of the most magnificent words in the world. But it's not only within the past few hundred years that the church has been marveling at and singing about this truth. Nearly all scholars agree that the passage in front of us tonight is one of the oldest songs written by and sung by the early church. It is, as one commentator put it, in many ways the greatest and most moving passage Paul ever wrote about Jesus. B.B. Warfield says these six verses. These few purely incidental words constitute one of the most complete statements of an essential doctrine to be found within the whole compass of the scriptures. And it makes sense that Paul would use a song to communicate this glorious truth. When a man wants to communicate his fascination with a beautiful woman, a treatise on the mathematical proportions of her physique will not do. When a mother wants to tell her children how much she loves them, she can't simply scientifically explain the chemical process of serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin that strengthens the bond between them. No. When we encounter a reality that is so transcendent, so sublime, We need poetry, we need music, 
to begin to even express it. So what we see in the six verses in front of us, this is Paul's Christmas carol. It's not entirely clear whether he wrote it or whether he took a hymn that the church had already embraced and used it to make his point. But whether he penned these words or borrowed them, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he included them in his letter to the church at Philippi. So this is no less than God's own inspired song describing the, sub, uh, describing, uh, the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, one, one writer summarized the passage this way. How it happened, we cannot tell. But it is the mystery of a love so great that although we can never fully understand it, we can blessedly experience it and adore it. And another said, the hymn portrays a divine parabola of descent from the eternal glory to the cross and ascent back again to eternal glory. As a narrative poem, beginning and ending in eternity, it is complete in itself, he says. So I invite you to join me as we consider the words of this song, which stand on their own as a celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God. The outline is there in the bulletin, kids, along with the words to be listening for. And there are two simple headings that we'll break out further. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, in verses 6 through 8. And for that child, so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above, in verses 9 through 11. So first, the first three verses, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. These three verses speak of the identity of Jesus. In them, we see that he is truly God, but also that he is truly man. But they don't only speak of who he is. They speak of what he has done. They speak of his work, of how he has redeemed mankind through his substitutionary death. Look at verse 6, which as one song puts it, shows that he is God of God, light of light. Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped. Immediately, we're probably met with so many questions. And the first one, what does it mean he was in the form or nature of God, your translation might say? We know that God does not have a physical form that we can see because he's a spirit. He's immaterial. So what kind of form does Paul mean here? The, the Greek word that he uses only shows up here in this passage and one other verse in the entire New Testament. And the verb here translated was in the ESV, or maybe existed or existing or being in your translation, if you have a different one. This word is stronger than just a simple past tense was. It's a verb that, that, that gets to the very essence of what a person or a thing is. So, so this passage is speaking of the pre-existence of Christ. The idea here is that this form, this nature, is what we would understand about someone's nature or character based on what we can perceive about them. So Paul's argument is, if you were able to observe the second person of the Trinity before the point in history that he became man and was born of the Virgin Mary, you would come to the conclusion that he is divine. Everything about him exudes deity. Paul is saying here 
the same thing that the Apostle John said at the beginning of his gospel. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In his commentary, John Calvin describes this form as the majesty or the glory that the Son shared with the Father even before creation. Which is what Jesus talks about in John 17 when he prays, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And this this godness that he possessed meant that he was fully equal to the Father. There is no subordination in the Trinity. The Son is co-equal, co-eternal, and of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. Everything that we can say is true of God, we can say is true of His Son. So, our second question that we're confronted with is, what is God? What is it that we can say is true of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And our own larger catechism answers this in question seven. It states, God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. All of these things are true of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. You may be thinking, that's fine, but those are a bunch of big words. What does it matter that these things were true of the Son of God before his incarnation and birth? But it's vital that Paul begins here for this song. These things are precisely the things that Jesus did not consider Something to be grasped. This glory, this blessedness was his by nature and by right. And yet, these are the very things he laid aside in his condescension to us for our salvation. And ultimately, here's what it comes down to. If Jesus is not truly God, he cannot save us. Our larger catechism, again, puts puts it this way in the answer to question 38. It was requisite or it was necessary that the mediator should be God so that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death to give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Only God can endure the punishment our sins deserve and can conquer death and can save us from our sins. If Jesus is merely some good man or some good teacher, then we have no hope. He is the one that came to save us from our sins. Thanks be to God. He is truly God, but it's not only for his advantage, it's for ours. Our Lord did the exact opposite of what our father Adam did in the garden. In the garden, Adam was tempted by the devil, and he grasped at equality with God. 
The law that the serpent gave saying, by eating the forbidden fruit, you will become equal to God. And so he plunged all of us into sin and misery. But the son of God, the second Adam, who by his very nature possessed that equality with God, was willing to lay aside that glory in order to pull us out of that state so that we may share in his blessed life forever. So verse 6 tells us he is God of God, light of light. Verse 7 shows us that he was pleased as man with men to dwell. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what Paul's saying here is, just as he was truly God, in one act, he became truly man. And here we enter into a realm of mystery so great that we should tread very lightly. So much damage has been done trying to explain the manner in which God, the Son of God, became man. So we must be willing to admit how much of this is so far beyond our comprehension. But in the same way, we must not shy away from asserting and believing what Scripture does tell us. Jesus did not merely appear to be a human. He was not God with the shell of a human body. He is really and truly man with a true body and a true soul. And we must also be very clear in what it means that he emptied himself, or your translation might say, made himself of no reputation. Because as God, he is immutable. His nature cannot change. So in his incarnation, he didn't give up any aspect of his godness. Concerning his divine nature, he remained and remains all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and eternal, just as he always has been. In the incarnation, he didn't lose anything that he had. Instead, he added. He took on a human nature. But the effect of this human nature was such that the glory which he enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past was veiled as he took on human flesh. In his earthly ministry, he didn't glow in the dark. When his disciples or the Pharisees or those who came to hear him preach looked at Jesus, there was no denying that he was a man. A man with unparalleled insight into the word of God. Yes. A man who read the hearts of other men. Yes. A man who performed miracles. A man who never sinned, but truly a man. Chrysostom, an early church father from the fourth century, puts it this way. He says, lest when you hear that he emptied himself, you should think that some change and degeneracy and loss is here. Paul says, while he remained what he was, he took that which he was not. And being made flesh, he remained God in that he was the word. Calvin's also helpful in his commentary to clarify. He says this, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Christ has one person consisting of two natures. 
He who was the Son of God, in reality equal with God, did nevertheless lay aside his glory when he in the flesh manifested himself in the appearance of a servant. The abasement of the flesh was like a veil by which his divine majesty was concealed. Yes, it is mysterious and wonderful and impossible to get our minds around. The fact that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. But his condescension from the highest glory didn't stop at merely becoming a man. Paul says he became a servant. More correctly, as that word is often translated, a slave. And when we hear that, servant language, our minds ought immediately to go back to Isaiah, especially uh, chapter 52 and 53, where the prophet speaks of the servant of God who would deliver his people from their sins. Jesus submitted himself under the weight of the law, under the curse of sin. He submitted himself to the authority of his earthly parents. He lived a poor life with next to no possessions of his own. He did not exercise the authority that he had to command angels, neither when he was tempted by the devil, nor when he was arrested. He declared he came to serve, not to be served. He spent his entire life, as we've been hearing in Luke in our study, expending himself for the benefit of those around him. And he put on the literal uniform and did the literal duty of a household slave at the Last Supper when he washed his disciples' feet. Jesus, our servant. And just as it was necessary that he be truly God to save us, so he must be truly man. Again, the larger catechism is so helpful here. This is from question and answer 39. It was requisite or necessary that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, and have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Or as the church father Gregory of Nazianzus put it, he cannot heal what he did not assume. Thanks be to God that because Jesus has a human body raised from the dead and glorified, so also all who believe in him will receive glorified bodies free from pain and sickness that will last forever. Because Jesus has a human soul, so also all who believe in him will be perfected in their souls, free of sin in paradise with him. And because Jesus has a human will and mind and emotions, so also do all who trust in him have the guarantee of an eternity free from sinful desires, mental illness, the countless pains that come from living in a fallen world. Our Savior is truly human. And so we have hope of a true and total salvation of our entire person, body, and soul. If Jesus is not God, we have no hope. If he is not man, we have no hope. So we may ask, how is it that he is both God and man? And we must be content to accept the mystery that, as Chrysostom says, 
There is one Christ, the Son of God. When I say one, I mean a union, not a confusion. The one nature did not degenerate into the other, but was united with it. Christ is one person with two distinct natures, truly God and truly man. But Paul's Christmas hymn is not merely a reflection on who Christ is. It also tells us why he took on flesh in the first place. And verse 8 tells us, Nails, spear shall pierce him through. Paul writes, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here, I think, is the danger of simply reflecting on the incarnation at Christmas. It can be very tempting to simply think of Christ coming and living as one of us, and we can end up sentimentalizing the whole thing. But the reality is, we cannot separate Christmas from Good Friday. The whole point of the baby in the manger is that our sins demanded the payment of death, and we needed a substitute to deliver us from that sentence. Christ's humiliation didn't even stop at becoming a poor man who served other people. The one who shared in the glory of God for eternity past subjected himself to obedience, even to the point of a shameful, public, cursed death, bearing the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And just kind of as an aside here, notice that he became obedient. There are those who teach that the Son, in some sense, has always been submissive to the Father, even prior to creation. And this passage shows that is manifestly false. The Son was in every way equal to the Father. And it is only in his office as the mediator of the covenant of grace that he becomes obedient. Or as we read in Hebrews when we studied, he learned obedience. The early church hammered out this reality in the 5th century and, and, and explained it in the Athanasian Creed. So if anyone, anyone ever tells you or you read from them that the Son has eternally submitted to the authority of the Father for whatever it's worth, you have my permission to ignore anything they say about theology. It is simply unscriptural and unfaithful to the historic faith to see the Son of God in any way less than the Father as touching his divine nature. It is in his incarnation that the Son submitted his human will to the Father's will and obeyed. As a true man, he perfectly obeyed the law of God, and he obeyed his Father's will following the plan of redemption all the way to a horrific death. And one commentator I read had the insight that even his obedience in death proves that he's God. Because only a divine being can accept death as obedience, he says. He writes, for ordinary people, it's a necessity. Jesus is the only man in the history of the world for whom death was optional. And he freely chose to experience it so that all who believe in him might be freed from its power. So the first half of the Christmas hymn shows us the Godhead veiled in flesh as the Son condescended to serve, to die, that we might be saved. As Wesley wrote in his hymn, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." But if Paul's song ended there, 
It would fall short. Just as we cannot separate Christmas from Good Friday, we cannot separate either from Easter or from the Ascension or from the glorious second coming of Jesus. Just as verses 6 through 8 trace the descent of the Son of God from the highest heaven to the grave. Verses 9 through 11 show his restoration to that place of highest honor. Demonstrating the reality behind the line of another great Christmas hymn. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. Paul's hymn underscores the fact that the man Jesus Christ is the most glorious being in the universe as God's glory shines through him in his exaltation. Look at verse 9 with me, which causes us to sing, Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is no longer in his humble estate. His exaltation began with his victory over sin on the cross. His glory reverberated throughout the earth as he walked out of the grave, having conquered sin and death forever. His glory is manifest in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he rules now over all things as king of creation. And he ultimately will be universally glorified when he comes again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. The name of Jesus is no historical byword or afterthought. It is the name above every name. Just think about the facts that here, in a Gentile land, thousands of miles and 20 centuries removed from his life on earth, the name of Jesus is still universally recognized. As Calvin puts it, there is no dignity found either in heaven or in earth that is equal to his. The glory veiled in his humanity did not remain hidden. But he has been restored to the fullness of that glory that he's always possessed in his divine nature. And this exaltation isn't derived from creation. He doesn't get it from us. It's lavished on him by his father as a result of his obedience that accomplished the salvation of us, his people. So the only proper response to this name is for every creature to obey the call, fall on your knees. Paul continues in verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We need to recognize the significance of what Paul's song is saying here. The power over the universe is not vested in some hidden, faceless, distant God. The majestic name doesn't belong to a tyrannical ruler or a cruel and arbitrary deity. The name above every name in the universe belongs to a man from a small town in the countryside of Judea. The name of the king of the universe belongs to a man whose friends included fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, and political dissidents. The most honorable person in the cosmos is a living breathing, actual, historical person. What wonder, what mystery. And the exaltation he experiences is not limited in scope. 
every knee will bow to him. Every created thing submits to him, whether willingly or unwillingly. So the question is, will you heed the call now? Will you fall on your knees and seek salvation in his glorious name while it is still the day of salvation? Because one day he will return and you will see his glory. And at that point, you will bow before him. Better to do so now in allegiance to him as your gracious sovereign than to be humbled before him as your victorious enemy. And then Paul's song moves to its highest point in verse 11, which tells us, Christ is the Lord, O praise his name forever. This verse is a continuation from verse 10, and it refers back to what we heard in the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 45. The song ends with this, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there is so much to unpack in that one statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. First, in its immediate historical context, this, which is the earliest of the Christian creeds, it's a direct contradiction to the emperor worship of Rome. The confession throughout the empire was supposed to be that Caesar is Lord. But the early church set the example for us when she refused to elevate any man above her Savior. Jesus is Lord is a denial that any prince can accomplish our salvation. It's a denial that Caesar was divine. This creed is a pledge of allegiance to the kingdom of God and to its king, even if it requires renouncing your citizenship in an earthly kingdom. But this statement is even so much more than that. The Greek word translated Lord is kurios. This is the word that was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to translate Yahweh, the name of the covenant God of Israel. So the confession, Jesus is Lord, is a statement that a first century man from a small town in the Middle East is identical to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Indeed, the God over all creation. And this is a direct reference to Isaiah 45. Earlier in Isaiah, that same God had stated he would not share his glory with another. And in Isaiah 45, he swore an oath by his own name that every knee would bow and every tongue confess to his lordship over all. So Paul's Christmas song ends with one more crystal clear declaration. The son of God who made himself a servant, is no less than the supreme, divine Lord of the universe. He is king over all earthly powers. He even has power over life and death. And all of this brings glory to him and to his father. The journey in the song comes full circle with the preexistent son of God restored to his rightful place on the throne of heaven. So as we come to the end of Paul's Christmas hymn, we must ask ourselves, how then should we respond? So as we close, I want to give four exhortations in light of what we have seen. First, 
We need to see Jesus as our substitute. If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in Christ for forgiveness, if you have not bowed your knee and acknowledged Jesus is Lord, my call to you is to bow before him and confess now so that it's not forced on you later. One way or another, you will bend the knee to this glorious king. You will meet God face to face. My plea with you is to come to Jesus as your savior who offers himself to you through his word and through the sacraments and calls on you to come to him in prayer. Jesus died to save sinners and you qualify. My prayer is that you would meet Jesus in his humble state as the slain savior of sinners so you don't have to meet him as an enemy in his exalted state when he returns with all his glory. Second, we need to have Jesus as our brother and God as our father. Christian, when you doubt God's love for you, when you are lonely and feel abandoned, when everything in this world seems unstable and unsure, you have this assurance to fall back on. God's love for us is displayed in that he sent us his son who gave up everything so that we could live with him for eternity. Let the truth of Paul's Christmas carol sink into your heart. Let these words be your refuge in the dark times as you wait in hope for his return in glory. Third, we need to see Jesus as our example. Paul's whole point in quoting this hymn in Philippians is specifically to teach and exhort the Philippian church to exercise this type of humility within the church body. In light of the glory of Christ, we should see how foolish our own pride is. and We should follow the example of Jesus by humbling ourselves before the Lord, knowing that he will exalt us. This humility begins with bowing the knee and confessing the name of Jesus. And it puts to death our own pride and our own self-importance. This humility includes not insisting on our own rights. As Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, humility is loving. It seeks to be a servant of others. and puts their needs ahead of our own. And humility is obedience, even when it leads to suffering. Which leads to our last exhortation. We need to recognize that the way to glory is through humility. Paul doesn't call the church to gain social or political or economic power to fight the wrongs of Roman culture. He doesn't call them to fight the culture war. He doesn't call the church to expect the world's approval as they live faithful lives. Instead, he holds before them a servant and says, be like that. He calls them, he calls us to see life through the lens of the theology of the cross rather than the theology of glory. His call to Christians is the same as the Apostle Peter's. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If we follow the path of Christ in sharing with his sufferings, we will surely follow him in sharing his glory in eternity. So we ask, what child is this in the manger? And we see the Godhead veiled in flesh. We see Christ our Lord in heaven. And our response through our worship and our lives is, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Not only at Christmas, but throughout our lives and for all eternity. So may his spirit empower our hearts to do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for the most precious.